Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 33. This week, we're going to start the book of Jeremiah, which is actually the longest book in the Bible. We're going to cover today Jeremiah chapter 1 through Jeremiah chapter 25. So let's dig in and note a few things to keep in mind when reading the book. First, Jeremiah had ancestral connections to Shiloh, where the tabernacle first stood. His father, Hilkiah, was a descendant of Abathar, who was a descendant of Eli. His father, Hilkiah, might have also been the high priest who found the book of the law during the days of Josiah. That should ring a bell as far as that story. Second, Jeremiah likely encountered more enemies in opposition than any other prophet, period. And we'll read about that. Third, Jeremiah is the only prophet who recorded his own feelings as he ministered, which makes him both very interesting and very helpful to other ministers. Fourth, there are remarkable parallels between Jeremiah and Jesus. No other prophet bears as many striking similarities to to, to Jesus, making him one of the most Christ-like of all prophets. Fifth, Daniel and Ezekiel were contemporary prophets of the time of Jeremiah, so that'll give you a time frame. Sixth, just about all of Jeremiah's ministry took place in one locale, in Jerusalem. Seventh, the book of Jeremiah is quite repetitive. The book is very repetitive. The book is very repetitive. You get my point? (laughs) Repetition is designed for emphasis, so take note of it when you see it. Lastly, Jeremiah used object lessons to communicate spiritual truth more than any of the other prophets, allowing his prophecy to be concrete and vivid. All right, so chapter 1 of Jeremiah details the prophet's call to ministry. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken into the captivity by Assyria more than a century earlier. Judah, or the southern kingdom, was rushing blindly in the same direction that the northern kingdom was. God has chosen Jeremiah even before he was born for his calling in life. You know, it's amazing to realize that God chooses us before we are born and that he has appointed us to become engaged in the spiritual and moral crises of our times. You know, when we face a crisis, we often turn to our leaders for a solution. But when God confronts a crisis, he sometimes starts with a baby, like in the case of baby Moses floating down the Nile, or baby Isaac, or baby Samuel dedicated to the temple, or the long prophesied baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, Jesus. Jeremiah felt inadequate of God's call to serve, and if we're honest with ourselves, when God calls us to service, we tend to feel the same way. But it's the promise of God's provision and protection that allows us to freely serve him. And the last half of that chapter of chapter 1 contains two visions, one of an almond tree and the other of a boiling pot. And these two visions are to provide reassurance to Jeremiah that what God says will happen. And even though Jeremiah will face a large amount of opposition, Look at verse 18. It says that he will stand against the whole land. Rest assured that God will carry out what he has planned. Now, chapters 2 through 25 contain prophecies and warnings to the kingdom of Judah in view of their sins and the consequences of those sins and the coming exile that's going to take place in Babylon. So that's kind of those chapters as a whole, chapters 2 through 25. It's kind of the main theme as you read through those. Now, let's look at the first one, chapter 2. There's a very strong sermon on Israel's apostasy in chapter 2. In the heart of God's indictment against Israel here on apostasy is in verses 20 through 28. And there's many... um, ways in which God describes Israel's issues. Uh, Judah was like an animal that had broken the yoke that had bound her to the Lord. 
She was like a vine planted and nurtured by God that had become incapable of producing any good fruit, like a stain that could not be washed off, and like a wild animal in heat, Judah could not be restrained in her lust for numerous foreign gods. So all this language gives you this impression that that Israel, or excuse me, Judah, rather the southern kingdom, has just left, has abandoned God. Judah eventually became so spiritually irresponsible that God's judgment was necessary to curb their rebellion. And yet, in spite of God's judgment, the people still refused to respond. They even killed God's messengers, the prophets. And so Judah's irresponsibility showed up most clearly in her forgetfulness of God's past goodness. A bride would never forget her wedding ornaments that identified her as a married woman, but Judah had forgotten her God who had given her so many great blessings. That theme of apostasy continues into chapter 3, where Judah had separated from her husband, the Lord, and had lived as a prostitute with many lovers. There's something to be said about persistent and habitual sin here. It can desensitize an individual to the nagging of one's conscience, to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, or the direct rebuke from God's Word. Will Judah learn anything from the experiences of the northern kingdom? You know, while God promised to respond if Israel and Judah would return to him, their repentance had to be genuine. They had to remove their idols and stop pursuing false gods. Though circumcised physically on the outside, the men of Judah needed to circumcise their hearts so their inward condition matched what they were professing on the outside. Now moving into chapter 4 and continuing through chapter 5 and 6, Jeremiah warns about the coming judgment from the north. Judgment is near if there is no repentance, he says. Chapter 4 warns us that judgment is coming and Babylon will be the nation to carry it out. Chapter 5 details all the reasons for judgment, namely, specifically here, that they preferred wickedness rather than righteousness. That's strong words. And then chapter 6 informs us of the certainty of judgment. It's coming. Jeremiah uh, earlier spoke about the rep- we earlier spoke about excuse me the repetition that occurs in Jeremiah while beginning in chapter six verse ten and throughout the rest of the book, listen more than thirty five times Jeremiah says the people did not listen to this, that is disobeyed his words they did not listen to his message thirty five different times it says that Jeremiah spoke and and gave them God's words yet they still refused to listen, wow. Sounds like today's world. Chapters 7 through 10 are often known as Jeremiah's temple address because they're focused on God's punishment of the people due to their false religion. You see, in chapter 7, Jeremiah is told to go to the entrance of the temple and relay that message that God would give him. And that message was that they needed to reform their ways if they wanted to continue to live there. But the people believed that the temple was some sort of good luck charm that would ward off any attack. However, God did not value buildings over obedience. He never does. Jeremiah tells the people to remember what God did to Shiloh, where the tabernacle had first dwelt. You can look for that in Joshua chapter 18 and 1 Samuel chapter 4. If Judah, if Judah did not change, then God would destroy the temple just as he had destroyed the tabernacle at Shiloh. But the people refused to listen. And then in chapter 8, God asks a serious question. God asks several serious questions designed to show the stubborn nature of Judah. Judah felt superior to the other nations because of the Mosaic law that was given to her. However, that law was being handled falsely. But God's mercy is great, but it's not without its limits. Those who willingly or willfully continue to rebel against God may reach a point where the opportunity to repent has passed. Now, chapter 9 is Jeremiah's lament over Jerusalem's condition. 
His heartfelt empathy for his people earned him the title of the weeping prophet. Jeremiah wept and wailed because the Babylonian, the Babylonian invasion and deportation would make Judah desolate. It would make them a heap of ruins inhabited only by wild animals. Yet his empathy for the people was balanced with his hatred for sin. And we must balance a love for sin with a hatred, excuse me, a love for sinners and a hatred for sin. Now, get out your pen and underline these verses, verse 23 and 24 of chapter 9. God wanted Israel to know him, but it seems that they did not know him. These verses are an excellent reminder of what it means to know and understand God. Let me read them. I'm reading from NLT, chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, or the powerful boast in their power, or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates his unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth, and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. There's some powerful verses there about knowing the Lord. Moving on to chapter 10, the first 16 verses of this chapter are a powerful satire on idolatry. Read through them and see how God speaks about idols that are made to false gods. But what I like the most about this chapter is verse 16. And it says, but the God of Israel is no idol. He is the creator of everything that exists. Another powerful verse there. And because of Israel's desire to worship idols, exile is soon coming. So certain is it that God says, pack your bags, prepare to leave because it's coming. And I am certain of that, he says. Now, moving into chapters 11 through 15, we're told that because the people had not obeyed the Lord, the Lord, the Lord would now bring on them all the curses of the covenant. Remember back in uh, the law in Deuteronomy, reading the blessings and the curses? Well, that's going to happen now. The people responded to Jeremiah's words, not with graciousness or thankfulness for reminding them, but they respond with a plot to kill him. Sounds like the religious leaders who, after Stephen's speech in Acts 7, who don't want to hear Stephen's words of rebuke and silence him. They silence him with death. This desire... Um, for the people to silence Jeremiah, brought Jeremiah to ask the question of why the righteous continue to suffer, but the wicked do not. If God was indeed angry with the sins of the wicked, then why do they seem to prosper? And God's answer surprised Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah that the things are only going to get worse for you, not the answer that Jeremiah was wanting to receive. We need to remember that living for God in this life will not always be easy. We must be prepared for trials, be prepared for obstacles, because they're going to come. Well, if the people wouldn't listen to the words of Jeremiah, then maybe a symbolic act or object lesson might get their attention. In chapter 13, we find the first of several symbolic acts that Jeremiah performed to communicate divine messages. Other prophets did the same thing. God tells Jeremiah to purchase and wear a linen belt for a while and then to hide that belt in a cave. Then he is told to go get the belt from the cave after a period of time. And when he does, he finds the belt is ruined and rotted. And in a similar way, Israel and Judah had become ruined or rotted by departing from their God to serve false gods. And one of the curses God threatened to send on a disobedient nation was drought. And that's precisely what happens in chapter 14. The people appeal to God for help in the season of drought, but God refuses, citing that their repentance will only be superficial. It won't be real, he says. Then the people appeal to God a second time, but the nation, it seems, has gone too far. There's no turning back. Look at what chapter 15, verse 1 says, that not even if Samuel or Moses were here to intercede for the people, would God change his mind. That's powerful. I mean, Samuel or Moses two great men, if they were there, God still wouldn't change his mind. 
God would send four types of destruction, we're told in chapter 15. The sword to kill, the dogs to drag away the bodies, the vultures to eat the dead carcasses, and the wild animals to finish up what's left. Wow. The nation's sin and decline during the days of King Manasseh was so ingrained that judgment was inevitable. There was no turning back now. And that's kind of the talk and kind of the things that were happening here in chapter 15. Now, chapter 16 highlights some restrictions that God placed on Jeremiah. He placed them on him as a means of making his entire life an object lesson to the people. So this idea of the object lesson continues. The first restriction was that Jeremiah was not to marry and raise a family. Why, you ask? Well, it was to demonstrate that the coming catastrophe would be so great that it, it would interrupt all normal relationships. The second restriction was that Jeremiah was not allowed to mourn when someone died. This was to show that no one would console the survivors of Jerusalem over their loss that was coming. Third restriction was that he was not to enter a house during a time of feasting. This illustrated that times of feasting and happiness are soon going to cease because of the coming destruction. And as Jeremiah explains his object lessons, the people naively ask God what sin they had committed to deserve such harsh treatment. I mean, seriously, Israel? God responds specifically with two verses that if you were to summarize all the root problems throughout all of Israel's history, these two verses would be the best. Did you hear me? If you were to summarize all the root problems throughout Israel's history, these two verses would be best. Chapter 16, verses 11 and 12. And it says this, I'm reading from NLT again. It is because your ancestors were unfaithful to me. They worshiped other gods and served them. They abandoned me and did not obey my word. And you are even worse than your ancestors. You stubbornly follow your own evil desires and refuse to listen to me. However, even in Israel's darkest hour, God still provides hope that the people will, that the people will be restored after the exile as the chapter closes. And to me, that's a merciful God. Chapter 17 explains that the people of Judah were so entrenched in idolatry that it was as if, as if their sins were etched on their hearts with an iron tool. You know, if the ways of blessing and cursing are so clear, then why would anyone choose the path of sin? Well, the answer lies in the heart. And that's where Jeremiah 17, chapter, excuse me, chapter 17, verse 9 comes into play. It's an often quoted verse, and it says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Only the Lord can know the hearts and the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And therefore, only the Lord can justly render to each person what he deserves. Therefore, the point here is that the Lord knows the heart of Israel, and he is rendering the judgment to her that she needs. And that last part of chapter 17 demonstrates how far the people had disobeyed the law in terms of Sabbath observance. If Israel did not obey the command to keep the Sabbath, God would bring judgment that would leave Israel defenseless, he says. Now, in chapters 18 through 20, it, there is another symbolic lesson or another object lesson from Jeremiah. This is the parable of the potter. As Jeremiah watched the potter mold clay into pots on his wheel, a potter discovered a flaw in the pot. And the potter then pressed the clay into a lump and reformed it. And so the picture here is that the people of Judah were like clay in God's hands. If Judah would return from her evil ways, God would revoke his judgment he was going to send, and he would remake them. This demonstrates God's sovereign control over all the dealings with Judah, over all the dealings with the entire world and universe. And the parable continues in chapter 19 as Jeremiah buys a clay pot from this potter, and he gathers a group of elders and priests and walked into the Hinnom Valley to deliver a message to them. The valley itself was a very specific backdrop of importance because it was the place where Baal worship 
and idols were located. Um, and for shock factor and for the leaders to get the message, Jeremiah takes the clay pot and smashes it on the ground. He announced that just as he smashed this clay pot, so also would God smash Judah and smash Jerusalem. Well, at this point, let's just say that Jeremiah is not the most favorite person at this time. The response towards Jeremiah was not positive. Because of what he does, Jeremiah is seized by order of the temple's chief officer and flogged with 40 lashes. Afterwards, Jeremiah was put into stocks for public ridicule. You know, in the public arena, we find that Jeremiah was fearless. But in private, he expressed the depth of his inner emotions to the Lord as he felt that God had deceived him by letting him be ridiculed and shamed by all the people for his message. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that Jeremiah is the most emotional of all the prophets. That is, his emotions are recorded for us. The second half of chapter 20 shows the highs and lows he experienced in ministry. I, myself, and pastors in general, we can relate to all these emotions that Jeremiah is having. You see, because there's a difference between a vocation and a calling. When we say that someone is called to the ministry, those of us pastors and ministers understand that what Jeremiah experienced is likely what we will experience. And we know this going into it because it's a calling. It's not a job. No one in their right mind would go into a profession if they expected to be treated like Jeremiah was treated. He was ridiculed, criticized, publicly beaten, shamed. Like a lion, the enemy was ready to pounce upon every misstep that he, he would take. But pastors and ministers who are called to ministry, we fight these battles all the time. You know, and sometimes and some days are worse or better than others. Pastors and ministers are the most underpaid individuals for the sheer volume of stuff, if I can generalize it that way, that we have to work through and lead people through. But to us, all that stuff is what we are called to do. It's a calling. It's something that God constrains us to do. We cannot stay silent. We must teach. We must preach. We must speak of God's amazing story in the multifaceted ways in which he's gifted us. We understand Jeremiah's words clearly in verse 9. But if I say, I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name, his words burn in my heart like fire. It's like a fire in my bones. I am worn out trying to hold it in. I cannot do it. Every pastor, every minister, every person who's called to ministry understands that fire there in verse 9 of that chapter. Very, very powerful words, but you get an insight into Jeremiah. You get an insight into a prophet, into a pastor, into a minister in the book of Jeremiah that you don't get anywhere else, save maybe in the New Testament when Paul starts bearing some of his heart. Now, in chapters 20, excuse me, in chapters 2 through 20, Jeremiah has been rather generic about his denunciation of Israel's sins. But now as we move into chapters 21, 22, and 23, Jeremiah is going to get more specific. He's going to name names. He's going to name places as well. So in chapter 21, King Zedekiah sent officials to Jeremiah to see what the Lord had to say about Nebuchadnezzar's attack. On Jerusalem. Jeremiah's message was one that the king did not want to hear. God vowed to fight against Israel. Those who chose to remain in the city would die, but those who surrendered to the enemy would live. Jeremiah also said that because of the sin of self-reliance and sinful disobedience that was prevalent in the royal line of Judah, God would punish him and the royal palace would also be destroyed. Now in chapter 22, Shalom, which is another name for King Jehoaz, came to the throne after Josiah was killed by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. And Jeremiah predicted that Jehoaz would die in Babylon after he was captured and taken there. Also in this chapter is a message to King Jehoiakim. 
because after he was appointed king by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, he began to build a palace for himself at the expense of the people. The people were forced to work without pay, and because of all the, all the things that he did, Jeremiah said that when he died, the people would not mourn his death, but that he would receive the burial of a donkey. And like an animal that dies in the city and is tossed outside the city gates, so Jehoiakim would not be given a proper royal funeral. And the last king mentioned in chapter 22 is Jehoiachin. And he surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar and was deported to Babylon. He and his mother would eventually die in Babylon. So he's naming some names here. Now in chapter 23, uh, we're told that many of Judah's kings were like shepherds who had destroyed and scattered God's flock. They deserve punishment, but if they were removed, who would God appoint to regather his sheep? It's a reasonable question. Jeremiah says, first, God would regather the remnant of his people who were dispersed and restore them. Second, God will raise up new shepherds who will care for the people the way that God intended. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this passage as he is the chief shepherd. Jeremiah continued his rebuke. And now he hones in on the false prophets. They are those who were making up visions coming from their own minds instead of the ones that were coming from God's. These prophets were leading the people astray. The people would rather listen to the messages of these false prophets who proclaim good things to come rather than Jeremiah's message of the coming invasion of Babylon because of Israel's sins. Now in chapter 24, we find another object lesson. This time we have two baskets of figs. The two baskets represented two groups of people, the exiles in Babylon and those who still haven't left Israel. The good figs represented the people of Judah who were taken into exile. This was surprising because the people of Jerusalem believed that those who had gone into exile had been forsaken by God. On the contrary, God promised to watch over that to watch over that remnant and restore them to their land after the exile is over. The poor figs represents those who were left behind in Israel. King Zedekiah and others who would flee to Egypt would be ridiculed and cursed whenever they, wherever they went. God would send his instrument of judgment against them until they were all destroyed. Now we come to chapter 25. The final curse of the covenant was that the people would be removed from their land, exile or captivity. They would be expelled. Jeremiah had been prophesying for nearly 23 years that this event would come. But even though he had spoken to the people time and time and time and time and time again, they still refused to listen. Let me just say that Jeremiah's ministry up to this point shows us that God is merciful and gracious and long-suffering. He is just one in the many long line of prophets that God sends continually to his people for more than 400 years. The prophets were to remind the people of God's law, to help them turn from their sinful ways and to turn back toward God and worship him alone. The Old Testament does not show us a God who is angry or mean or frustrated. It shows us a God who is loving, who is compassionate, who is kind, who is gracious, always willing to go the extra mile if it means that his people will turn their hearts back towards him. That, friends, is the God that I serve. And that's the same God that we find in the New Testament through the incarnation of Jesus. God was so dismayed that his people still wouldn't listen to him that he sent the best weapon in his arsenal, his very son. And yet even though God in the flesh was sent into the world, there were people who still would not believe. You know, this goes back to the power of sin and the hold that sin has over so many of us today. You know, one day that grip of sin will be lifted. And what a glorious, oh, what a glorious day that's going to be. Well, there's still much more to learn from Jeremiah, but we're finished for this week. That concludes chapter 25. Next week, we'll pick up 
in chapter 26. So that's all for this week. Again, if you have any questions, email them to BibleReading at LNBCA.org, and I will talk with you all next week.